This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics. Their developer toolkits provide world-class controls targeting Windows, Web, iOS, Android, Xamarin Forms, and more. Whether you're an individual developer or part of an enterprise team, they have something for you. Check out the latest today at infragistics.com. Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 56. This week, we talk with John Sheehan about Project Centennial, the tool for converting your existing apps to Windows Store apps. Is it possible to have a software developer career over 50? And the art of shuffling music. Today we have John Sheehan. He's a distinguished engineer on the Windows team. Uh, he's architect of the uh, Windows app model. And he came into Microsoft through the acquisition of Softricity, where he was chief architect. And uh, it sounds like one of their products was SoftGrid, which eventually became AppV, which I wasn't aware of, which is an app virtualization product and definitely related to what we're talking about today. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, Carl, that conference. Yeah, it looks like we both got our submissions accepted. So if you're going to be in the Midwest in uh, middle of August, uh, you can check both Jason and I out. I'll be talking on Windows 10 and Jason, you'll be talking on IoT. Awesome. And you said uh, we said our, our sessions are at the same time. Yes. So. Okay. So if you want to see the better session, go see Carl's. <clears throat> if you can see two sessions simultaneously, then watch both of ours. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's jump into feedback. So what do we got, Carl? First, an iTunes review, huh? Yes, uh, I believe you pronounce it Otakurisu, and if not, I'm sorry for murdering your I'm, name. I'm glad you tried to say it. <laughs> um, he says, I've been following the show for about 20 episodes now, and I get excited every time I hear that there's a new episode to listen to. It's a great source of conversationally toned info about just about anything in the Microsoft dev stack, and it has great interviews with industry insiders. It's easy and fun to listen to, but still manages to keep you up to date. Good job. Um uh, Really, thank you for that review. It's really nice hearing stuff like that. And it also really helps get the podcast bumped up in in the iTunes uh, listings. Yeah, we love those. We love those for sure. And then we have our Infragistics license winner of the week, which is Floyd Hilton. He had a Twitter status. Uh, great discuss- discussion on AWS versus, versus Azure. Um, that was last week's episode with Kevin Whitkoff. And that was pretty good. Uh, so we appreciate your comment on Twitter. So we're going to be reaching out to you to get you that free license information. And we found out, Carl, it's actually the the uh, the ultimate license. So it's like everything. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And uh, I hope you enjoy it, Floyd. Yep. Uh, so if you want to get mentioned on the show, send us an email <clears throat> to feedback at msdevshow.com, comment on Facebook, iTunes, or Stitcher. And we especially love those iTunes reviews like Carl mentioned. Let's jump into the news. Uh, so what do we got here? Programmers above 50. Is it possible to have a career past your 50s? I hope so. <laughs> I'm sneaking up. You definitely can at Microsoft. I'll say there's there's a lot of really really strong engineers that are in their 50s. Um, so I don't know about all companies. I have heard some companies there's a kind of a, a, a bias towards uh, you know towards younger devs, but that's definitely not true here. Yeah, I, I see I see a ton of diversity at Microsoft. I see uh, a lot of women. Depending on the on the group, it sort of it sort of varies. Uh, but there's a lot of groups where it's you know primarily women. And then also minorities. Um, it's just it's just awesome out there because it is just a big melting pot. So it's great to see that at Microsoft. But um, yeah, so what what did this talk about, Carl? Well, exactly that. I mean, there was quite a few people that chimed up saying that, hey, I am older and I still develop. You get a lot of news about the you know the culture, especially when you're in more of the startup area, using younger developers and burning through them. But there still is a lot of jobs out there. They just don't get talked about. There are senior developers. You know, they just have better things to do than fill out surveys. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I know I, I never take any of these surveys. And honestly, these older developers, I mean, they 
they probably have a, a lot better understanding of the of the bare metal. So it's probably wise to listen to them. Anything else you want to mention on that one, Carl? No, I just That's thought it was bring up. Yep. Oh, uh, let's see here. Create bootable USB drives the easy way. So I don't know about you, Jason, but in the past, whenever I need to like throw an ISO onto a bootable disk, I like do a search for a Windows 7 download tool for, and uh, it, it's not too bad to use, but it takes forever. I mean, I, I don't think I can like make one of those in less than a half hour. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's this tool out there called Rufus. Um, you can get it at rufus.akeo.ie. And uh, it's a really quick way to make just bootable jump drives. You can throw whatever you want on there. Um, so I thought it might be useful for other people, too. Yeah, I'll have to try it. I think I use like WinDisk Imager or something like that. But I'll check this one out. It looks like it's pretty full featured. Yeah, we, oh, have, what we, we have internal tools for that. <laughs> OK, yeah, I think that actually I think there's a public one, too, that Microsoft makes. I think we have something. I just always like use the internal stuff. Yeah, cool. And then uh, SAS Pixel Art. I haven't yeah. looked at this one. I'm a fa- fan of SAS, so I just ca- came across this. And this was somebody showing using, you know, the built-in functions or the fact that you can have functions and <laughs> uh, stuff. You can actually, like, describe in a grid uh, system or, or multidimensional array of strings that you can create pixel art. So they even show, like, making some Mario icons. Wow. this is Yeah, this looks super this. powerful. So you can actually yeah. like draw it in your CSS and then it will um, it will render like that. That's similar to the the article that we talked about. It was a few weeks ago where you could you could draw a picture like of an arrow or something like that and actually actually create vector art based off of that. But this is the, uh, the basically it looks like the pixel art version of that. Yeah, pretty cool. Check it out if you're interested in either SAS or pixel art. So cool. And then this next one. Now, you know how to pronounce this first word, so I'll let you handle the title. All right. Um, as part of the new Windows design language, they've updated um one of the fonts used for the graphics and it's called Sego MDL two. So, you know, modern design language, Metro design language, whatever they want the M to stand for. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a font with those images in there and there is a designer named um, uh, Austin Andrews yep. and he's gone through and made a cheat sheet for how to access all these by name and by hex and all of that stuff. And then on top of it, we're also going to have links. Uh, Scott Lovegrove took what Austin Andrews had and up in GitHub, created a tool for referencing referencing these statically in your app. So if you want to access them in your XAML or in your uh, C Sharp, uh, he has some nice little helper uh, uh, classes uh, to reference that. Okay. And he even has a blog post about that. So Now, just so I understand, these things are actually, each of these icons is actually a character in this font, correct? Yep. So it's like a scalable vector image that you can scale up and down. You can colorize. You can do all sorts of fun things with. I just felt really weird doing that in a font, but it, it works. So I can't really complain about it either. <laughs> and it's really nice if you have like an app bar or a button, you just want to throw something in there quick and dirty. Yeah, it works. John, well. You were going to say something. Yeah, actually, it's surprising how powerful fonts are. If you, if you look at them, it, it is actually a vector language. Uh, yeah. And, and it's funny that it's actually more sophisticated than a lot of the other ones out there. Like, there's, I think there's actually some where you can do like execute code, isn't there? Uh, that's actually a side effect for some of them, yeah. But, oh, okay. Um, but the the big thing that fonts have that um, other a lot of other ones don't is they have things like hinting. So you can mm-hmm. say this is what it looks like, but when you get down to this, you know, this particular size, this particular screen, the regular rules won't quite render correctly, and so you can right. have hints that are specific to certain scales. And uh, and so yeah, yeah, you can't just you can't just shrink it down because it doesn't look right. You think it would, but. Whenever you actually look at the effect, it doesn't. Yeah, you're yeah, right. Well, that, that, that's why, you know, 
fonts have been doing vectors for you know thirty more than thirty years, and so they've they've had an awful long time to to sort of figure it out. Yeah, to solve all these problems, that's pretty cool. Uh, let's see here. So, Carl, you got to explain this one to me, and I want John's insight on this too. So, this is called the art of shuffling music. So, ex- explain to me, and I, I just I scanned through the article. I admit I didn't yeah. I didn't read every word in here, but the there's this whole problem. First, I'll describe the problem, which is if you just randomize tracks that you're listening to, what'll end up happening is you'll end up with with a, a shocking a shocking number of times you'll end up getting the same song twice in a row. Um, so, what they've done is there's there's different algorithms for handling that. But what I guess what I'm curious about is what's wrong with just keeping like a a stack of the last ten things that were played and just avoiding anything in that list. Does this does this um, article address address that? Well, I think the problem with that approach, Jason, is you, you're not looking forward either, and then you could get those all bunched up at the end if you have predominantly one artist because it's not so much the same song; it's by like the same artist. Oh, so where, they're looking at multiple factors to avoid yeah. like okay, I got gotcha. you. So what this does, and what's nice about this is you don't, like Jason, like said, he skimmed through it. You can just look at the pictures on this one. If you understand, <laughs> I, like, if you, I like those if, articles. If you understand what the problem is and what, what they're saying is there's a, uh, an algorithm that they use where if you take just like everything from all the songs that are in your list that are by that uh, artist, you might have one that has four and you might have one that has 12. And if you just randomly place them along an entire grid, then what you could do is you could just take all of them in the first one. You, and if there's uh, multiple ones, then you just have a way to randomize those. And then you grab all of them from the second column and so on and so forth. And as a whole, it's just an easier way to uh, get something that sounds random versus something that's truly random. Yeah, okay, I the, got you now. The, the big issue is that there, there's a big difference between actual random and human random. Mm-hmm. Right? We actually we deal with this internally as well, which is. Um, I don't know if you've heard the old experiment where the professor says, I want half the class to flip, you know, to basically flip a coin and, you know, write down what they get and the other half to just pretend they flip the coin and just do (laughs) random things. And, you know, about 98% success rate, the the professor could actually predict what was actually a coin flip and what was a human pretending to be random. Oh, wow. Because like if you're just flipping a coin, sometimes you'll get five heads in a row. And yeah, yeah. If you're and trying human to be random, always wants human. to like keep switching it. Yeah, exactly. You'll you you know you might do a few in a row, but you'd never do five or more in a row. Um, and so we have the same thing. Whereas our brains are, are are amazing pattern matchers, and so that's why people are always like, oh, you know, my uh, uh, my media player loves this artist or loves this song, and, mm-hmm. and it's just it's not true. It's just that we're looking for patterns where there are not. So yeah, so any algorithm where you can actually make it more human random than than actual random would to prevent people from sensing those things yeah that's very interesting so we have to we have to hack the human brain to make it seem right okay api convergence gets real in windows 10 and john you said that you actually uh had something to do with this yeah well i mean we've actually been like me personally um mm-hmm. and, and lots of other people in windows we've been working on this now for almost five years um mm-hmm. you know it started all the way back in phone eight um i drove the app model and have been on the API review board in Windows since since its inception, and uh, uh, you know, and was like the first person in Windows to start working with the phone team to start converging the APIs. We started in eight, and then in eight one, and you know, now really Windows ten is the culmination of all of that work. Um, and I can tell you right now that it is absolutely anything but easy. <laughs> you know, because I mean, it, in all honesty, you know, we we really did used to have separate operating systems and. And trying to get the right. same API surface, the same APIs to behave the same, 
when the plumbing was different was just so much work. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, that may, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So if it was, if Windows was like a greenfield thing where you had to build like a new operating system for phone and for desktop, would that, that, com- would that complexity still be there? Uh, well, no, because then we would have, if it was greenfield, we would have just started fresh and just done what we yeah. did with Windows 10, which is have, actually have one OS and just right. build it so that it can run on phones and it can run on desktop. Actually, the hardest part is still keeping, you know, everything else running. I mean, if you look at Windows, yeah. you know, apps that were built 30 years ago still have to work without code change, especially since people don't even usually have the source code anymore. Right. Um, and it's also true for all the previous iterations. Like every release, we, we do stuff. And then in the next release, it now becomes compatibility. Yeah. And even in the store, I mean, there's a long legacy there. Yeah. But, I mean, if phone has, I mean, there's, there's so many different flavors of, of ways you can build phone apps in the past. But finally, we now have a way of doing it. You know, yeah. Just it works out good for everybody. Cool. Anything you wanted to say on this, Carl? No, I just think that uh, this article was about this guy taking his Windows 8 application, which he said was about, you know, a third custom code for one project, a third shared code and a third custom code for the other project. And he was able to get rid of all that. So I think it's a real testament to the the work that your team did, John. Yeah, I guess we, we had the right person on for this news article. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> OK, let's see here. MAME is going open source to be a learning tool for developers. So MAME, is this that multiple arcade machine emulator? Yes, it is. Okay, and, cool. And I guess the, the piece of news here is in the past, they, they've had their source available, but they had such a restrictive license that um, there was like museums who wanted to, you know, display it or or display some of these arcades. And they couldn't because technically the license was too restrictive. You could view the code, but you couldn't do anything with it. Okay. So so now they've just opened up that so uh, more and more people can use it. So, I, you know, we're huge fans of open source here. And I think uh, this is huge. I know MAME is a, a really cool project that a lot of people are into. Yeah, it's very cool. I've been wanting to build an arcade cabinet for a long time. I just got to find the time at some point. Okay, well, let's get to John because that's why we're here, right? <laughs> so, uh, John, we brought you on to talk about this Project Centennial, which mm-hmm. Carl and I, well, Carl started talking to me when, when we were at Build. Uh, we were going walking down the street and Carl just he couldn't contain himself over this project. <laughs> he was just going crazy. And I hadn't heard about it previous to him telling me. And then I watched the uh, the session on Channel 9, which is pretty cool. And we'll have we'll have a link to that. Uh, it was an awesome session. But uh, let's start with, you know, what in your words, what is Project Centennial? Uh, well, so Project Centennial is really our attempt to um, define an app model for Win32 apps. Um, but, it, you know, as a step one towards getting people being able to take all their code and slowly migrate it into being a full UWA that runs everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it's ba- it's based on really two two different things. Um, my experiences in the past with AppV <clears throat> and app virtualization and understanding that uh, that you can actually do this right. So so what AppV did was it took existing Win32 software and we actually targeted uh, IT groups because IT groups you know like MSI failure rates are around five percent failure rate, which is just horrendous. Um, and uh, and then there's also problems like DLL hell and everything. And so large enterprises who have lots of apps were just feeling so much pain. And so we told them, hey, we can actually take that software that you bought, run it through a tool and spit out this declarative package, which isn't MSI anymore, which has, you know, much higher than 99% success rate um, and fixes DLL hell and does all these other things. And as you can imagine, we were able to sell tons of that. Um, and actually, Microsoft still t- still sells tons of that. That's the um, B product. 
And so we knew we could actually take the 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 what I like to call the non-app model of Win32 <clears throat> and convert it into a real app model, declarative, um, and something that really could could solve a lot of the problems. Um, then you know, additionally internally, we we've been moving our apps from being you know Win32 apps to being UWAs. Like for example, the new start menu. The new start menu is actually an app. It's an AppX. It runs in an app container. It's it's a it's a real app. Oh really? Yeah, that's and cool. I, and so is Spartan. So the new browser is, is yep. a real like app. And you know we just figured out how to do it. And you know the the, the basic process is you start by like rewriting the UI part, um, which is actually sometimes the most exciting part for the devs because instead of doing you know MFC or you know we actually have internal frameworks that people use. They could actually go and just use XAML and, and go. And once they start doing that, you know, they can have these amazing, you know, animations and transitions and everything that give it a very modern feel. Um, but you start there and you kind of, for any of the code that doesn't yet work in an app container, you sort of still run it full trust. And over time, you start moving that code in, fixing things up, you know, finding the bugs and fixing them. And pretty soon you've moved all your code in and now you're a UWA. And so we really want developers to be able to sort of follow that same process. So if you have some really cool, you know, Win32 app that you're working on for years, we want you to save most, we want to be able to leverage most of your code. Um, but over time, wouldn't you want that running on a, on a HoloLens or an Xbox or a PPI or, you know, all these other devices? And for most people, the answer is absolutely. Um, if you don't want to do the migration, it's, it's fine. Like you can, you can stick with your Win32 apps. Um, but the real the real benefit comes as you start to you know slowly port to the um, to the new world. Now help me understand App V um, because it in, which has been a technology has been out for years, like you mentioned, and it was it was at the uh, the company that you used to work at. Um, that was one of the things that were acquired along with that. Um, it's basically expose App V is basically exposing uh, the file system, but it's 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 sort of abstracting that away, right? I mean, it's it's containerized, isn't it? Yeah, is this so, sort of an early example of a container? Uh, yeah, in, in a lot of ways. You can think about it this way. All the inst- all your installer does is basically just throw files all over the file system and, and you know and put a bunch of registry entries all over the registry. Mm-hmm. And what what App V and what Project C will do is basically catch all of those things and then package them up. So mm-hmm. it's basically taking the end result of an of a successful install and then when you when you go to deploy it to other machines Rather than going and changing the system, it doesn't go and modify the system, so it prevents it from, you know, breaking the system or, or causing the system to slow down because it, the system keeps just accumulating junk. It keeps it in a separate place for that app. When the app runs, it runs in what AppV calls a virtual environment, what we call a container, mm-hmm. um, which is, uh, you know, a, a runtime environment where the app looks around and it sees all the changes that its right. installer made, you know. But in reality, it think it looks in System 32, for example, and it sees a bunch of DLLs that have, that its installer placed there. Well, they're not really there; they're somewhere else. Um, you know, I like to say that virtualization is lying, so we just lie to the app. There, I mean, yeah. these are good lies. These are lies that you know <laughs> that, that allow the code to continue to work the way it always did, but fix the system so that um, so that it's not. Yeah, a long time ago, I used a, a product called um, SVS, and it was from I think a company called Altiris, and it eventually got purchased. And uh, what was kind of cool about it, I could I could basically create like a new container. Um, I could install something into it. And I had even installed Office. I had installed uh, even Java. I had put a whole bunch of crazy stuff in there, SQL Server even. And and what was interesting about it is that 
you could turn these things on and off. I don't know if that v, does that V support turning things on and off then? Um, yeah. Okay. So you, I could basically t- install office and I could turn it off and, and ma- magically like all those files would disappear from my system because like you said, they were sort of a lie anyway. They're really just in that container and, and it would sort of, you know, they just wouldn't be there anymore. Uh, which was really cool. So I could turn on and off different things. It's such a cool technology to to build on top of this thing. So during your talk, you mentioned some of the cool side effects of, you know, you know, sandboxing the registry is that you get faster boot times. Are there other um, not so obvious advantages of doing uh, putting your programs into this? Um, well, so, I mean, some of the some of the biggest ones, I mean, the, the things that that, uh, that a lot of people don't really think about is building an installer is expensive. Um, I remember at Softricity, we had, I think we had like 30, 30 devs approximately, maybe 32 or something. And we did kernel level file system virtualization. We had, a, we built our own file system, which is, for, in NT is, is very hard. Um, we did, you know, all this kernel level virtualization. We did a ton of user mode virtualization, like COM and fonts and everything. We did all this crazy technology that was, you know, really difficult. And yet, um, we had three fairly senior devs that worked on our installer, and the long pull for the release was always the installer, right? Because you, with an installer, you're supposed to react to every single, like, every machine's unique. Like, it's the, it's the mm-hmm. worst problem to have. Every single machine is unique. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, the, it's the a number lot of, of ifs, ways it's that a it lot of ifs, fail, basically. Yeah. It, the number of ways that it can fail is just, like, astronomical. And, um, and then with DLL hell, you get all kinds of situations where it's not even your fault, but it fails anyway. Um, and so some of the big benefits are you can take those devs and now have them do cool, useful features instead of, you know, I mean, when's the last time you heard someone say, oh, this app is awesome. It has the best installer. I mean, <laughs> actually, I'm pretty sure I have said that at some point, <laughs> Yeah, really, <laughs> because it didn't but, destroy but I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm a normal user either though. Cause I, um, cause I, I can smell like bad installers and. And luckily, like these days, they're they're much better than they it used to be horrendous. Like you knew you could see, you know, like if you, if you get like the DOS prompt that, that pops up and you can see like it's copying files in, you know, that whenever you uninstall those things are not they're not it's not getting cleaned up whatsoever. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in all honesty, it was really our fault. I mean, the technology that we had MSI just um, it doesn't there's no way you can actually do a clean uninstall like you. you if you take everything away that you put down, you might break something. If you leave stuff behind, you rock. Right. And so there's really no, and, and no matter what you do, you can't do it right. And so, you know, it's a great benefit to be able to say, Hey, I, I can now, first of all, I might have much higher customer stat. You know, my customers will be way happier to just, to just single click, no, no UAC prompts, none of that junk. I hit a button and it, it very quickly installs very high success rate, um, higher confidence because, you know, those installers, they run full trust. So what are they doing to your system? Who knows? Right. And, um, even if they're well-intentioned, they, they, you know, anytime you run an install and it goes elevated, your system may never boot again. Honestly, yeah. like we, you yeah. don't know. And it, and it happens all the time. And actually those were the kind of fun bugs that we used to have because we had such sophisticated software that we'd run the install and at the end of it, the system would just not boot more. Those are fun. Yeah. Wow. I can't believe I've never drawn the the parallel between like server containers and these client application containers. I mean, they, they're, there's such a similar path. I mean, Docker sort of took the world by storm, right? It just like blew up really quickly. And everybody keeps talking about containers and, and 
And it almost seems like now we're, we're talking about containers a lot. And it seems like we're kind of late to the game after Docker, but in reality, containers have been a thing forever just on the, on the client side. And now they're, they're just starting. It sounds like we're going to be, everybody's going to be using them every day. Um, even on a client operating system now, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. Now, before we get too far, I wanted to back up. We, you started off uh, in the first part talking a bunch about uh, an app model. Can you define what an app model is for us? Sure. So, I mean, an app model is about defining what a piece of software is. What are its boundaries? What is it, you know, what does it do on the system? What extension points does it leverage? What dependencies does it have? Like, it is a full description of a piece of software. And, um, and what it enables is the moment that the operating system can understand what the software is, now it can do things like safely deploy it and remove it. Um, it can integrate correctly with the system, control that integration, disable it if desired. Um, I'm not sure how much you guys have ever gone in and looked at um, uh, the, the kind of advanced settings for an app on, on Windows 8 or Name 1, um, where you can say, oh, you know what, this app, I don't want it to have access to my location. I love the app. Mm-hmm. I just don't want it to know where I am. Right. Um, you know, those kind of things. Um, or to say, you know, it's great that this thing wants to plug into the search provider, but I don't want it to. I still want to use the software. I just don't want to do that. And so it's really about understanding, you know, all parts of the application and its relationship, both to the system, to other pieces of software, right? Because there's dependencies between pieces of software, like that whole end to end. And once you have all of that, then you can do safely do things like I know it's safe to uninstall this and I know what I can remove. Um, And it's also about things like I know that this state is from this application and that state is about that from that application. There's always been this phrase of state separation that was never well defined. Um, But once you have a full app model, then you can have real state separation. So when you uninstall one of these apps, we'll say, hey, we know all the things that were its settings and its internal data that the user knows nothing about. We're going to remove all of that. Users' documents, all those kind of things, we know that that's the user's information. In your build presentation, you mentioned taking Adobe Elements and um, turning that into an AppX with nearly no changes. Can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, so um, as always, the number one like blocker when it comes to doing this is uh, licensing code. And it's usually only really advanced apps. You know, It's like the Adobe's and Microsoft's of the world who have teams of people that do nothing but try to make sure that people don't go and steal software. So we build these very, very complex licensing solutions. What the licensing solution is trying to do is basically prevent you from installing on one machine, going and grabbing all the files of registry entries, picking them up, bringing them over to another machine and dropping them down. Well, that's exactly what Project C does, right? you, You run the install on one machine, it captures everything and brings it to another one. So we always immediately run afoul of the licensing. And so, you know, we basically said to the, uh, to the, uh, the, you know, our partner Adobe, we said, hey, if, if you want to do this, the first thing you have to do is, you know, change your licensing code um, so that you, uh, you know, that you don't, you don't use the techniques that people use normally with MSI. You have to use different techniques. And so the first thing they did was they just turned it off um, for a build. Uh, and, um, and so, and then all we did with that is we took it and we ran it through the app sequencer because that's the tool we have right now. Um, and did what we like to call the naive sequencing, which is I know nothing about the app at all. I just run the installer and I hit done and it worked right away. And so, uh, you know, that's kind of the interesting thing about it is that no matter how, you know, these apps are very complex. They just have millions and millions of lines of code. And some of that code may run afoul of this stuff, right? Like it may be trying to get itself loaded 
into other processes or something. Um, but the vast majority of it is just kind of standard Win32 code that works fine and dandy with, the, with the Project C. Yeah, that is so cool. I mean, I just just so our listeners understand the impact of that and make, make sure I'm understanding correctly, too. So Adobe could easily take elements. They could put it into this AppX. Uh, they could put it in the store. And then, you know, you could say, well, why, like, why do I care? Uh, well, the reason you care is for things like updates, right? Because you could have a new version come down. You don't have to run an update process. Whenever you get a new machine, I mean, you just log in and it could pull that down as a modern app. Um, I mean, there's just, there's so many cool things about just that working. And then also it just doesn't, it doesn't mess with your system at all. If you're not running it, it's taking, literally taking no resources other than space, right? Right. I mean, the system is just completely unaffected by it. Yep. And, um, and I think that's where the world wants to be is, is at that point. Yeah. I mean, right now, if you think about it, if you go on your system and you install, if you install it on software, you know, I think we, we, we typically find somewhere between five and 10 auto update services that run 24 hours a day, seven days a week, just in case there's an update to <laughs> app A. Yep. There's a separate service that's running 24 hours a day just for app B and app C and app D. Yeah. Adobe does that. Java. Oh my oh, God. I just... Yeah, I I, I, uh, <laughs> I I have I have very illegal thoughts whenever that comes up. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Java itself is great, but the install and update experience is horrendous. Yeah, yeah. Java is one of those things that I um, I never never install. But I always does. And actually, that 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 makes me that makes me think of this now. I mean, if you have if you have an application that has a dependency on Java, does J- would would you end up packaging Java with it, or is Java still something that would end up getting installed on the system? Uh, so as of right now, um, you. Uh, it, it will really be up to licensing. It depends on which version of Java you're using. Um, we know a bunch of people are using the open source version of Java. And right now, they would just package it with their app. They would just all okay. together. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, in general, for now, it's going to be you just package up all the stuff you need. Um, luckily, the way that the deployment stack works in Windows, um, uh, at, at installation time, it auto-dedupes everything across all packages. Mm-hmm. So if you did have a case where you had 10 apps and they all had Java in them, um, uh, at install time, we actually, before we even download, we would detect that we already had the same file on disk and we would just hard link it and skip e- even bringing the bits down. Oh, wow. So while you may, while it may look like if you looked around your hard disk, you say, oh, I have 10 versions. You'd actually just have one. You just have nine hard, you know, or 10 hard. Right, right. Oh, that is very cool. And that's like, a, is that across users as well? Uh, yes, it's across users as well. Okay. Okay. That is very cool. Yeah. Cause we have um, a single instance store in windows. We've had it since Win eight and we'll continue to have that where. You know, even though the installs are per user, so if you and I are sharing a machine and I install a piece of some software and you don't want to, you don't see it. But then if you go to the store and hit install and it's already on disk, the install goes really fast because we have to download <laughs> nothing except your license. Oh, okay. Okay. I didn't realize that that was the case for Windows 8 because, yeah, with my kids' school, their, their uh, laptops, I think, are like 32 gigs. And they actually all use the same user because I didn't realize it had that behavior. I should have checked into that a little bit more. Yeah. Carl, I got to interrupt this for just a second, and I want to talk about Infragistics. Yeah, if you comment uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, on our website, you have a chance to win the ultimate license from Infragistics. And this is pretty cool because it covers a lot of stuff. Um, They have controls for Android, iOS, Windows Phone, Windows 8, ASP.NET, MVC, WPF, jQuery HTML5, just tons of stuff. And they even have stuff for Xamarin Forms. So if you're trying to hit all three major mobile platforms with one, they got controls to help you out there. If you need tabular stuff uh, with their grids, they got really cool controls to help make that look uh, just really sharp. 
charting, gauges, barcodes. It's all pretty simple using their controls. And if you just have some uh, simple prototyping needs, they have a product called Indigo Studio too. It lets you get that prototype done so you can show this to the stakeholders and you know sell your ideas. Yeah, what I love about that, you can just send them a link and they can actually navigate through the app. But uh, like you mentioned earlier, all of these controls across all these different platforms, this is great. I mean, most people don't just develop one type of app now. So being able to to go and use these controls in every type of app all under one ultimate license is is really big plus. If we don't select you uh, each week, you could try again next week. And if you can't wait, they have free demos. So you can try it out for a month, download the demos and try it today. Yeah, check it out at infragistics.com. They're a free trial, so you have nothing to lose. And remember, each week, if we pick your comment on the show, you get the ultimate edition for free, which includes everything. We thank them for their support of the MS Dev Show. So one question I had was on this this tool that that basically takes the MSI and and creates an app um, an AppX package out of it. So what is that essentially doing? Is it just watching everything that the MSI does? Yeah, there's basically a couple. There's a file system filter and a registry filter, and they just sit there and catch everything. And so as the as the installer is going in, you know, doing you know you know reg set value, reg create key, reg set value, reg create key, and create file, create file. It's just capturing all of that. And then once the install is done, it just bundles it all up into an AppX, and um, and and then you have your app. Okay, cool. And the, I mean, the other thing, I mean, it has to do some other stuff. Like it does a post, it, it does a, a step after because once it has the files and registry keys, it has to understand things like, oh, that file is actually a link file in the start menu. So we should have a tile in you know in the AppX manifest so that when you install it, you see it on the start menu. Okay, oh, so there's some intelligence those, in there. Those registry keys actually represent com objects, right? And so because of because of that, we need to do some stuff internally so that com works correctly, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So we've talked about like taking some sort of legacy application that's already had an installer, but what if I'm, you know, in the process of making a WinForms WPF app or, you know, my corporation just never has made an installer? Can I be able to compile these straight into an AppX? Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, with, with a lot of the, the, the partners like Adobe that we're talking to, it's, it's probably highly likely they'll never even run through that process. They will directly generate it. I mean, if you think about it, all an AppX is, it's, it, an AppX is a zip file. I mean, it's a fancy mm-hmm. zip file. Mm-hmm. And inside that zip file, there's a couple of pieces of information. Uh, a bunch of it's generated automatically that you don't have to think about, like the block map. The only things as a developer you need to care about is the AppX manifest. Um, and the AppX manifest basically says, hey, I have a tile, I have this, I have that. Um, and then the other thing about that, that Project C adds is basically there's two things. Um, if you do need files to appear like they're in, for example, System32, well, there'll just be a magic directory you know, uh, there that you just drop files into, and then they'll magically appear in System32, and same for program files and a few other places. And then the, the other thing that's there is just a, a high file. So you just take... You can go ahead and dump a bunch of registry values into a high file um, and put that in your package, and those things will then appear at runtime for your app. So it's it's pretty straightforward, and um, we don't have any uh, you know public announcements on you know tooling yet, but we are working with the Visual Studio team um, since this really is uh, you know the, pro- the what we want people to embrace moving forward. Um, and so we want the developer experience to be as, as, as great as we can make it. Um, but yeah, you should certainly be able to do that. In general, for a, you know, for a lot of this stuff, if you're starting fresh, um, moving to actually just building a XAML app or 
WinJS app, or you know, if you're if you're advanced to DX app, probably um, uh, a better route if you're starting scratch. This is really for things like, hey, we've already built it, and so. Well, a corporation, I'm just thinking of like a line of business apps because we, Carl and I talked to a couple of people that were really excited about this technology because they, they basically, you know, they're creating WPF or even some of them are just doing wind forms today and they might even have some older uh, computers that they have to support. You know, they might still be running windows seven or windows eight, um, probably mostly windows seven at this point in the, in the enterprise space. And they just don't, you know, the worst thing to deal with as a developer is how you get that installed. So if for all the Windows 10 users, as they roll out Windows 10, if they can have that version of it where they can say, hey, look at this, you just you just install it from our corporate store and you're done. That, that's a huge advantage. Yeah. Huge. Well, the, the, other, the other thing that we're looking into in, in this, we're working with the open source community is um, what would be ideal would be to have this one package and then on Windows 7, be able to have a little MSI like, you know, thing that can just read the AppX file and do the equivalent things as an install on Windows 7. Because it basically has all the database information that MSI would need anyway. Exactly. And so I don't know if you've heard of Wix, the Wix toolkit. So, yeah, so Wix would be, be, it would be a great solution. I mean, Wix has something else interesting, which Wix is already a declarative install. So if you're using Wix, there shouldn't be any reason that you couldn't go from Wix directly to AppX and bypass the whole, you know, sequencing process. but, uh, you know, and then additionally, when they did that, they could say, great, we'll use that as our format on Windows 10. You can just install the FX and on 7, you can run this this little, you know, stub MSI that can just, you know, take its take its cues from the FX. That's pretty cool. So are there any types of applications that aren't going to be able to use this technology? Are there any kind of showstoppers? Oh, sure. You absolutely. mentioned licensing earlier. Well, no, licensing isn't a showstopper because it's in the, it's in the developer's control. The biggest yeah. thing is that um, the um, the subset of of, uh, of apps that we're, we're targeting are actually things we call real apps, right? Because mm-hmm. there's really system software and there's apps. And system software needs to run, for example, as local system or needs to run as admin. And it really needs to have God permissions on the system. And that stuff, once it's there, can do absolutely anything you want. Um, what we're targeting for Project C is what I like to call Win32, the good parts. It's the part, you know, because Win32 has a ton of great stuff, but it's, it's, you know, it's treated as one big bucket. But, you know, some people, when they say that, like, they will include device drivers. They'll include NT services running as local system and all those kind of things. And those are things that, you know, regular apps really should not be doing. And in general, you know, it's, it'd be, everyone would be better off, both the users and the developers, if they weren't doing that. Um, I mean, I can even tell you internally inside of Windows, um, you know, when I do design reviews, I tell teams that do not run as local system or do not run as admin unless you absolutely positively have to. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of developers that come in with designs where, hey, we're going to be a service. And then they leave with, oh, no, we're not. <laughs> you know, because it's just, it's, it's, it's just very, very hard to write very secure code. But if you have a single vulnerability, you're in trouble. So yeah. with Project C, you can only run as the user that installed you, right? So you can't run as other users, you can't run as admin, and you can't run as local system. So a big one is things like antivirus. Um, you would not be able to deploy antivirus this way because antivirus typically has kernel drivers. They run a system. Yeah. And if you think about it, the last thing in the world you'd want to do to your antivirus is lie to it, 
right? right. Remember, virtualization <laughs> is like, live. There, there's no files in this file system. Everything's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that file is really there. Sure it is. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, the, the, the antivirus wants to see only the real state of the system. And viruses try to lie to antivirus all the time. And so they're, they're in the middle right. of an arms race of not being lied to. And the last thing I think they'd ever want <laughs> would be us to turn around and make it part of the system. So. Yeah, there was a movie. Uh, it's called Catch Me If You Can. That was uh, that, that was all about this. <laughs> so, is there any kind of performance impact on apps that have gone through this process and are now running in that Apex? Um, there always can be. I mean, anytime you change the environment, there can always be some. Um, but we have, you know, we now have 15 years of experience saying it's it's pretty much not noticeable at all. The the interesting thing about the OS is that performance really matters for the the, the operations that happen a lot. And not so much for the for the for the rare ones or, or the less common ones. And so there's this concept of the create path in, in the kernel, right? When you're first opening a file, like a lot of stuff has to happen. It has to go through lots of layers, lots of filters. Um, it has to do a security check. It has to, you know, so it has to access the disk. And the create path is is orders of magnitude slower than like read read file or write file. And so um, the virtualization really has an effect on the on the create path. A fairly small one, um, but just to give you an idea, when you look at the containers, like the Docker stuff, and we announce the stuff that we're doing, um, that stuff uses the same filter, and that filter can run and does the same basic techniques, and it can run an entire operating system at full speed. So, as, so that that's kind of the the big scale thing to say, yeah, there, the overhead is very low compared to you know um, most other techniques. Yeah, and the and the cost of doing like file and registry redirection, I got to think as a percentage of how powerful your computer is has got to be just approaching zero. I, even for low-powered stuff, I mean, uh, you know, in general, in you know, in, in internal Microsoft now, we kind of, you know, we have the religion now. We try to do everything with the worst hardware we can. I mean, yeah. I went over. I was in, I was in a dev manager's office the other day, and he was running a seven-year-old box that he had been upgrading <laughs> since Windows Seven, and that was his main machine. And he had to reboot it in front of me, and you know, it was. Took a little while to get, you know. Well, and, and welcome used. to the real world, right? Yeah, that's, exactly. That's, and, the, that's the thing. And so, yeah, so so we really try to embrace it. It's so one of the, actually the really cool things about Windows 10 is that um, it's getting it's getting lighter, it's getting yeah. faster, and it's been the because case for we a while. have a kernel now that we have to run on IoT devices. I mean, I know you're not doing video, but right here sitting at my desk, I have a Raspberry Pi too. Yep, and I it's running too, Windows, too. and so we have to run on that thing. And so, it, because it's the same kernel and the same system services. Um, you know, there's way more pressure now for teams to lighten their load. I mean, I can't tell you how many how many bugs we deal with, which is just, you know, you've regressed this by by a disk read by you know 400k on boot. It's like you have to fix that. You know, it's <laughs> like it's non-negotiable. Yeah, cool. Yeah, we had talked earlier about, or you had mentioned bringing you know your applications over piece by piece. You'd slowly migrate it over, and we had that news article that talked about the convergence of the WinRT APIs. So, how difficult is it to migrate Win32 and .NET to WinRT in that gradual fashion, like we had talked about? Well, actually, so it's interesting, and th- this is one of the problems of of using kind of the colloquial terms that are that are imprecise, which is. Um, you can call tons of Win32 APIs from from uh, UWA, and mm-hmm. one thing one thing we did in Windows 10 was we added a ton of APIs back that we had uh, that we had just b- before weren't on the list of approved APIs. So we've added a ton back, like WinSock and you know all the threading APIs. And you know what we really did was we went out and looked at the common apps in the world and what APIs they used, and, and tried to find the big meaty buckets of 
if we could just have these APIs back, then they don't have to do any work. Right. And so the number of APIs, uh, the Win32 APIs that are in the MSDK that you can use is much greater in Windows 10. And that was on purpose so that we could make this porting easier. So you don't have to go and change all your code to be using um, uh, WinRT. The, you know, the big, the, 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 the kind of the things that we can't just add back, the number one one is um, HWINs. So all the APIs that deal with HWINs, you know, it turns out that HWINs just are, are, uh, are kind of long in the tooth. Like they're, they're, they, they serve their purpose at the time, but there's been so much things that have happened, especially in the kernel in Win32k.sys, that, you know, if you change any of it, you break everything. And, and Win32k is a very heavyweight component. So we continue to run it on desktop because, hey, desktop is desktop and it needs to run all the apps that, you know, that are even, you know, 30 years old. But we don't run it anywhere else. Like we don't run it on phone or HoloLens or anything. And so if you're using those kind of APIs, like you have to change your code because otherwise you're, you're never going to run on, on, on those devices. But luckily, the, you know, when I talked about that process, usually the first step is getting away from H1s anyway and going to XAML. And by the way, once you've, once you've written the code for a little bit, you will look back at your, I mean, actually, you don't even have to, like, everyone knows, like, when they're dealing with H1s and MFC and, you know, all these mm -hmm. things, they're just a nightmare. Like, we know they're <laughs> just a nightmare. They're just, they're, they're you know, you're, you're, you're so close to the guts of the system and all the weird oddities that, that trying to build, like, robust code is just difficult. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, even our internal developers were more than excited when they got to say, hey, we get to throw away our HWIN code and we get to write XAML code. You know, it was this very like liberating moment. It was, it was almost religious. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, so is there anybody that shouldn't be looking at using this? I know we mentioned some of the apps. Um, is there any kind of audience that, that shouldn't be looking at, um, at, you know, packaging up their app in this way? Uh, not really. I mean, not, not for audience. I mean, in general, like I said, it's, if you're building system software right now, we're not targeting that. It's just, it's, it's beyond what, you know, what, what, I mean, it, it's not a question of, gee, we just don't have enough time. Like we, we seriously don't want that kind of software running and we won't run that kind of software in a lot of different systems because, you know, the moment you have some other system software running, the integrity of the system is at, is in question. Right. It really is. Um, but other than that, no, I mean, any audiences, I mean, whether it's enterprises or desktop or, um, you know, or, you know, people targeting the store, um, I will say though that, that there's still a big difference between App V and, and Project C, and I think it's one of the things that kind of, that that people don't understand yet. And I, you know, I had 45 minutes to give a talk, so that's about yeah. all people know about it so far. Um, but it'll it'll become more obvious um, moving forward. But you know, App V is really targeting enterprises and saying, you know, without changing the software, we will get it running, including. Like AppV supports running running you know services as local system. Like they already support that. They do anything that they can, any odd, bizarre behavior that either the operating system has or the apps have, they will replicate it, no matter how much time it takes them. And that's really their their you know their yeah. Target. That's a little bit different goal versus yeah. have, you know getting something into the store. Yeah. So for example, like you know that they will faithfully preserve short path names across all systems and all this craziness. And we're just saying, no, like, don't use short path names. Like, don't yeah. take any, don't take dependencies of short path. I mean, they've been, you know, Windows has been trying to get rid of short paths for 15 years, at least. And it's always been like, oh, well, some apps still need it. Well, this is now be a class of applications. We'll just say, you know, don't do that. Um, there's other things like, you know, uh, you know, file, some of the file system stuff around like transactions and stuff. 
it was a it was a very very well designed very cool feature that fell short because hardware manufacturers um, basically lie and so <laughs> um, you know and and so those those kind of things we're just telling people these these are these are these are the Win32 the not so good parts yeah so don't use those things if you stick if you stick to the good parts first of all your your code will be more robust and better off and and second of all your users will be happier because your 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 system your you know your software will behave more cool yeah i know you probably can't give us a really good answer on this but is there any time that we can expect this to be out even in preview form you know to get our hands on it because i know i for one i'm pretty excited about this yeah you can tell us we won't tell anyone yeah seriously. <laughs> uh yeah actually it's funny like I, I it's not it's not even that i have an answer that i can't give you but i mean we are i mean we're excited that with this new flighting uh stuff that we're doing windows it's amazing like we can get stuff out there early and get people trying it so we as a group that are building project c are are very motivated to get it into a flight as soon as possible um we just have this thing called Windows 10 that we're trying to like finish up. I've heard so of that. We have, yeah. we have yeah. some, you know, we have some developers working on Project C, but pretty very, you know, very shortly there'll be a lot more. And so it's really just been a question of, you know, finishing what we committed to before we, you know, get really, you know, deep into the next thing. Um, you know, we would hope for something, you know, in the to have it on, in a flight in the fall. Um, but as as far as which flight and when. If you guys know, you're way smarter than I am because I have no clue. <laughs> well, we're super excited for it. Uh, anything else you want to say about it that we uh, that we didn't touch on? Um, yeah, I, I think actually the thing that we haven't even spoken about at all yet, which is probably one of the really, really cool things that, that isn't obvious at first, is when we start talking about Project C, we keep talking about that conversion process. And we're saying, mm -hmm. hey, it's it's your existing code and it's just running. But the, the thing that's that's not obvious at all, which is awesome, is that the moment that you do the conversion, you actually have a UWA now. So even though with like a Win32 app, you can't do, for example, an app-to-app -app contract or be a, you know, um, you know uh, a file picker plugin or a, uh -huh. you know, a, a share target or something, the moment that you have that, now you can be. You can immediately start writing code. You don't have to change your Win32 code because you, you just can create a new like component. Like So in Visual Studio, you could say, I want to create a new share target or app to app service or whatever and you could just start writing that code using just standard you know uh you know msdk winrt apis you can start writing xaml for those things so even if your regular ui is is you know still your old hwin based ui for those components you can still start writing the, the xaml stuff and it's a great way to immediately start adding features um uh without you know without having to like rewrite everything first. You can start, you know, the moment you do the conversion, you can start doing it. And then the other cool thing is the moment you do the conversion, even if you don't want to write any, uh, you know, WinRT, XAML kind of code, there are a bunch of the API surface. Um, well, first of all, do you guys even realize that from your Win32 app, you can already call WinRT APIs today? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that. They think that like, if I'm in a, you know, if I'm in a yeah. app, I write Win32. They don't realize that the, you know, that it's, that it's, yeah, they, they really compartmentalize those two things. Yeah, and, and, and even sometimes, you know, internally in our brains we do. But but there's already a bunch of WinRT APIs you can call. But there's also a bunch that you can't. And the only reason that you can't right now is that those APIs require an identity. So when you build your application as part of the app model is having a strong identity for the application. It's, you know, it's tied to the digital signature that you use to sign the package because all packages are signed. Um, and then it's tied to whatever you decide to name the package on top of that. Um, 
Win32 apps, like regular, just, you know, MSI apps, they don't have those identities. And so therefore, you know, if they, for example, if they call the API that says update my live tile, well, that's just going to fail because in that, in that phrase is the word my, right? right? <laughs> Who are you? I don't know. Like you're, you're some random app that just called me. Whereas, yeah. you know, for a UWA, when they call it, they know, oh, I know that you are tic-tac-toe or you're connect four or you're, you know, you're Spotify or whatever. Um, and so, uh, the moment that you do the conversion, you actually now have an identity. And so you can start calling all those all those WinRT APIs just from your existing code, just like right in line with all of your other code, and they'll just start working. And so another another great one is licensing. So we talked before about, hey, you might want to change your licensing code. What a bunch of developers are just going to do is they say, you know what? I'm not doing the licensing stuff anymore. I put it on the store. That's your responsibility. Yep. I just put the licensing checks into my code exactly the same way that I would for a UWA on the store, use exactly the same code. And now all of a sudden I have, you know, I, I have licensing and, and you get subscriptions and in-app purchases and all that good stuff. Yep. So then that also means that if I have like this huge application, let's just say it's like a hundred megs or whatever, and I just update a few things and put it out there. If it's going through the store as a UWA, I'm the users are only getting streamed those few bits that actually change. Yeah, they're absolutely. not getting the full. They're not getting the full hundred meg update. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So automatically, we you don't do anything. We just inspect all the files and everything and figure that out for you. This is just the best of everything. This is awesome. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's that's, that's why that's, we want to talk to you. This was the reaction we were hoping for. Although yeah. It was it was it was very funny internally. There was a there was an interesting split between the people you know like like me who were like oh everyone's gonna love this and then other people saying oh well I don't know if people are gonna love it that kind of Eeyore mentality. But it turns out people love it. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's this, you know, love for um, existing apps and which makes sense because people have huge investments. I mean, people don't want to give up their investments. Yeah. So it, it makes just, a ton yeah. of sense. I mean, we wanted to do this for a long time and it's just one of those things that it just didn't quite make the cut until now. Yeah. Uh, should we move on? Okay. So my Azure pick of the week, I probably haven't had one in a while, but I have a good one this week, uh, Project Oxford, and we'll have a link to this in the show notes. But if you go to projectoxford.ai, you can actually check this out. You can see all the APIs, you start using them, and then there's also demos of all these out there. So what's really cool, if you go to the uh, vision feature analysis section, as an example, there's a whole bunch of pictures there, or you can upload your own picture, and you can upload a picture of pretty much anything. Like there's a picture of a flower here. It will actually tell me... Uh, whether or not it's clip art, if it's line drawing, black and white, tell me if it's adult content. So like this, uh, um, this flower here is uh, 3% uh, adult content. Uh, it's 2% racy. <laughs> uh, and then it even tells me that, hey, this is a plant and a flower. And it's 99.6% uh, sure about that. It has dominant colors. It does all that cool stuff. So I think this is the API that powers that how-old.net. Uh, but this it gives you a ton more information. It, uh, it must be because I uploaded an image of myself and it gave me an approximate age, gender and all of that as well. OK, so we finally solved that. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding, Carl. I'm just kidding. But you can do things like uh, an OCR. So you can upload a picture in here and it will convert it into text. And what's cool is you can get back the text, but you can also get back JSON and it will actually tell you the exact bounding boxes. So we'll say, you know, within these coordinates are the, this is where this particular word is, which is really cool. 
Uh, there's also a thumbnail service here. So, you know, you take a normal uh, image and you try to make a thumbnail out of it. And how do you do that? You can just sort of take the middle of the picture, but that might not be the interesting subject within the picture. This will actually give you an intelligent thumbnail that actually centers, you know, the interesting thing within these tiny, tiny thumbnails. And you really have to see it to understand how significant that is. Uh, there's also speech recognition. Uh, there is text-to-speech uh, functionality in here. And then there's this thing called uh, Lewis, which is, I can't remember what it's called right now. I'm trying, I'm hitting my back button. Language Apparently, Understanding Intelligence Service. There you go. So that thing, what you end up doing is whenever you say something, it will actually parse it apart and give you a JSON representation of, of sort of the actions in there and the and the keywords. So if you want to build a system that actually is 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 trying to understand what you are saying, uh, that's one way to do it. Not not just the text of it, but the actual intent of what you're saying. Um, and then there's a lot of um, separate face detection APIs in here. So being able to do things like group faces, you know, saying I have these 10 pictures, like, you know, group all these people in here. So I know which ones are of the same people. Um, what else is in here? OCR, let's see, vision, speech. Detail. I think I covered them pretty good. Uh, one cool thing, face verification, like, is this the same person? If you want to say, you know, if you want to do that. Um, and what's cool about that, and and actually all these APIs, are, the response that comes back is super detailed. But like for those, whenever it's analyzing a face, what's really cool about it is I'll actually tell you like the eyes are at this X, Y coordinate. The mouth, you know, has has these dimensions and it will tell you sort of a bounding box for even different facial features, which is really, really cool. So I just thought this is this is an awesome set of APIs. I know Microsoft has done this in different forms in the past and API form is, is in my opinion, the way it, it should just be. And uh, that's how this works. So you can use it from anything, anywhere. It's really cool. And then, Carl, what do we got for the app of the week? This week's app of the week is by a listener of the show, Igor Kuhlman, and he has a phone app called TV Time. Uh, what's really cool about this is it lets you kind of track your shows. It'll tell you, like, if there's a show that's coming up uh, soon, it, uh, if it's a show that hasn't been around yet, it'll let you track which episodes you have or haven't watched, uh, it'll let you know how many that you've missed. Um, and it's just got a really good look to it. It's got, you know focuses very heavily on the visual pictures of the show shows themselves. And uh, I've been yeah. using it for, uh, for, a, app. for a, a week or so now. And it's, it's pretty fun to use. I love um, this main screen though. It tells you like today, one missed five days. You missed 10 shows, which is, I don't know. That, that's sort of bad. <laughs> Cause then it's just going to force you to watch more TV, but I love this too. It's got like a checklist here so you can keep track. Um, Cause sometimes I forget, unfortunately like Netflix keeps track but this is great because it'll tell you, you know, like which episode you're on. Because I always forget about that. Installing right uh, now. <laughs> yeah, and then it it is a free app that uh, by default only lets you use five uh, track five shows. So if you want more than five shows, I'm uh, assuming there's an in-app purchase for that. Okay. Cool. Yeah, and you should. Uh, well, I won't. I won't comment. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I try. I try. You know. I try to just remove any kind of TV from my life that I can. I watch uh, I watch one episode of one show each day at most, and that that's pretty much it. So this is this is overkill for me, but this is a cool looking app. Uh, okay, so John, we play a game on the show. This is super easy, but all I need you to do I need you to pick a number between one and four, and I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. This, and this is a kid. This is a game for kids, but you know we're just we're just big kids. So pick a number between one and four. Got it. Well, you got to you got to tell me what it is. Oh, four. <laughs> You're very literal. I love that. Uh, <laughs> would you rather live in a house made from Legos or live in a house made from mud and palm leaves? 
Oh, Legos would be awesome. Yeah, that's like that's yeah. easy. Okay, Carl, what what number are you picking? I'll pick two. Two. Um, <laughs> would you rather have long arms that hang all the way to the ground, or be seven feet tall but only have two foot legs? <laughs> I'll pick the first one because I'm already a little bit tall and it sucks hitting your head on things. Yeah, like. Would your arms be like deformed or would they be fully functional if they're still hitting the ground? I would, that, I would assume. As long as you can functional. use them, you know, whatever, I guess. Okay, cool. <laughs> that, those were some interesting questions this week. So, John, where can people find you if they want to uh, read or see more of your stuff? Um, I have a Twitter account, uh, which is um, my Twitter handle is dumbnose, spelled just like you think. <laughs> it's nice and easy. Yes. Um, I, you know, I haven't really been that active on it, but I, um, I've realized recently that I need to start being more active on it. So you've actually been getting work done. Yeah. I was was here this weekend. Not, 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 not for that many hours, but at least both days. Okay. Well, that's probably better. We appreciate, uh, you guys and the work that you're doing. Uh, Carl, where can people find you? You can find me at WPDevGuy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me at YTechie.com or on Twitter at Twitter.com slash YTechie. So, John, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. We we were super excited about it. And I don't know about you, Carl, but I'm I'm even more excited about it. <laughs> and uh, I'm pretty much everybody I see, I'm going to end up telling them about this because this is really, really cool. So thank you for the great work that you did on this. Thanks a lot. Be sure to subscribe by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. Leave us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast aggregator of choice. Visit us at msdevshow.com where you can leave comments, check out our links, show notes, and more. Visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash msdevshow. You can send us your comments and feedback directly to feedback at msdevshow.com. 